the latest after Ukraine uncovers a $40 million corruption scheme. Of course, public is not happy with that, but uh, at the same time, for Ukrainian public, it's not, you know, something uh, new. After Russia's heavy losses, will small nuclear weapons play a role in the conflict? So for them, they're constantly thinking about what, what sort of dosage of nuclear weapons would they need to make us acquiesce. The role gender plays in the ongoing war. They're really important for the sorts of values that both countries are claiming for their own. And how specially trained dogs are assisting soldiers to fight the enemy. Today is Monday, January 29th. And from the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Hello, I'm Steve Miller, in for Lori London. Russia says that its air defenses throated a drone attack on Monday on the Slavneftyanos oil refinery in the city of Yaroslavy. Now, that's located some 250 kilometers northeast of Moscow. Russia also said that its forces had taken control of the village of Tabivka. That's in Ukraine's Kharkiv region, although Ukraine denies that. And on Sunday... Ukraine's military said that Russia launched drone and missile attacks targeting civilian and critical infrastructure across wide areas of the country. Now, all this comes after last week, Ukrainian officials said that they uncovered massive military fraud in the scheme that saw tens of millions of dollars exchanged for weapons that never materialized. The discovery follows the downing of a Russian plane that was said to be carrying Ukrainian POWs. VOA's Arash Arabasadi starts us off. Soldiers holding defensive positions near the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut fire artillery rounds after last year's counteroffensive failed to pierce heavily fortified Russian positions in the south and east of Ukraine. They say the one thing they always need is more ammunition. It is against this backdrop that the Security Service of Ukraine, or SBU, announced it charged five people with embezzling some $40 million meant to buy 100,000 mortar shells. The money changed hands. The weapons never came. Rooting out corruption was and remains a key pillar in Ukraine's bid to join NATO and the EU, with officials from both groups demanding Kyiv address internal fraud. Meanwhile, the Kremlin continues striking Ukrainian targets like residential buildings and civilian infrastructure. But it was in St. Petersburg just days ago that a court convicted Daria Tropova for a terror attack on Russian soil in April 2023. Tropova was charged with delivering an explosive device to a pro-war Russian blogger as he gave a talk at a local cafe. She called it all a setup, saying she thought she was delivering a listening device and not a bomb that could have also killed her. She was sentenced to 27 years. All this comes as wartime officials disputed each other's accounts of the downing of a Russian military plane said to be carrying 74 people, including 65 captured Ukrainian soldiers, en route to a supposed prisoner swap for Russian POWs. Moscow has provided little evidence to back its claims that Ukraine shot down the jet or that captured soldiers were on board. Ukraine says Russia is so far blocking an international investigation, while Kyiv neither confirms nor denies involvement in the crash. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. About 100 relatives of Ukrainian servicemen gathered in Kyiv Sunday to demand the government set a limit on how long their loved ones should serve in the military. 
And joining us now is Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. And I guess where I want to start off is what do you have for us in, in terms of more updates on this news that really came out over the weekend where Ukrainian officials said that they uncovered this $40 million plot? Well, yes, actually, this case uh, is not... Uh as uh, not the, uh, a very new case, this case is already uh, in place for uh, around a month now, and uh, at least publicly, it's around a month already. And uh, we have certain uh, even updates already on that because uh, it looks like that um, the State Bureau of Investigation of Ukraine was working on it for quite a long time, and now we have the details. Uh, basically, in short, there is a, there is a family. Uh, that owning a business, uh, the main businessman of the family is uh, Igor Grinkevich, uh, who is Lviv businessman, and he is uh, basically the uh, the head of this well scheme, as we can uh, see from the report of the State Bureau of Investigation. What actually happened is that uh, the businessman's companies won uh, around twenty three tenders for the supply to the Minister of Defense of Ukraine for over forty million U.S. dollars. Uh, law enforcement officers discovered that uh, that six, at least six of those con- uh, contracts uh, were not were not fulfilled at all. Uh, under at least seven contracts, the enterprises delivered goods which uh, had a very bad quality uh, and uh, were not in a full capacity, while eight contracts were executed three to five months late. And uh, all of those contracts uh, were the direct contracts that supplied uh, the Ukrainian armed forces. And as you mentioned, in Ukraine, elements of this has been known for uh, at least a little bit, you say a month. Uh, What's been the overall reaction in the public? Well, this case in general is very public and reaction is extremely negative, of course. And uh, I should say that um, this uh, case went public as a part of this EU, uh, you know, transformations of Ukrainian anti-corruption uh, laws and anti-corruption, uh, in general, anti-corruption um, movements. Of course, public is not happy with that, but uh, at the same time, for Ukrainian public, it's not, you know, something uh, new that uh, such kind of corruption is present. But of course, um, it is different now because the the war for the full-scale war um, is ongoing for almost two complete years now, and uh, uh, definitely this kind of corruption um well corruption schemes uh, present uh, even during a full scale invasion and uh, for public uh, it's very important that these people uh, will uh, well will be detained will be um, and will return the money to the budget and on one last question over the weekend there were more protests by family members asking for a demobilization effort for their family members on the front line to come back and get some rest now this is in the midst of a potential call for more mobilization and ukraine entering a, a third year of war so what can you share with us i mean what's being discussed 
Uh, well, this is a good question. At this point, uh, we are talking about at least getting rest and at least getting uh, re recovery process uh, and uh, recovery possibility. Uh, and then uh, it should be um, at least how it sounds that it should be different ways of um, of things to to run. So some people will be back, some people might be back, but at different positions. So maybe not at the front line, but uh, at other um, at other service positions. Uh, some people might not be back, depending on the health uh, on their health and. Uh, uh, you know, mental and physical health. Um, so uh, th this is the question, how this bill will regulate this procedure? Because at this point, it it's it's not clear. And uh, But a lot of people and a lot of servicemen are saying that they need the mobilization uh, for, in order to rest, first of all, and they will be ready to be back. Anna Chernikova reports for VOA from Kiev, Ukraine. Anna, as always, we thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Steve. Now, up next, Henry Ridgewell tells us that Russia's heavy losses and its full-scale invasion of Ukraine means that Moscow now sees its nuclear weapons, including smaller, short-range nuclear bombs, as increasingly important in deterring and defeating NATO. That's according to a new report, which warns that the West must wake up to the threat. In February 2022, as he announced the invasion of Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin warned the world of consequences you have never faced in your history if the West tried to stop Russia. A report from the International Institute for Strategic Studies says fear of escalation has caused the West to hesitate in supplying arms to Kyiv. But nearly two years on, U.S. intelligence officials estimate Russia has lost more than 300,000 military personnel in Ukraine, nearly 90% of its pre-war army, much of it at the hands of weapons donated by the West, report author William Alberg. Russia has less confidence now in their conventional capabilities because of everything they've lost in the Ukraine war. That means Moscow's shorter-range atomic weapons, known as non-strategic nuclear weapons designed for use on the battlefield, are becoming increasingly important to the Kremlin, according to Alberg. Russia has basically short-range and medium-range air-launched, ground-launched and sea-launched missiles capable of delivering nuclear warheads throughout the theater and able to hold all of NATO at risk. NATO itself lacks sort of a countervailing capability uh, to match the Russian capability. The report highlights a June paper published by Russian analyst Sergei Karaganov, in which he endorsed a tactical nuclear strike on a European state supportive of Ukraine in order to restore deterrence against NATO. At an October political conference in Russia, Putin himself picked out Karaganov among the audience. Analyst William Alberg of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Putin said, yes, I've read all of your papers and I don't think we need to strike NATO, but I do think I need additional options in terms of escalation with the US and NATO in order to maintain deterrence. So for them, they're constantly thinking about what, what sort of dosage of nuclear weapons would they need to 
make us acquiesce, to make us basically sue for peace without escalating the conflict beyond their control. Russia believes NATO does not have the resolve to respond with its own nuclear weapons, according to the report, which says it's vital for the West to recalibrate its own deterrence. NATO has said the use of any nuclear weapon by Russia in Ukraine would fundamentally change the nature of the conflict and would have consequences. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. And still to come, we take a look at training canines or dogs for war and the bonds that they develop with their soldiers. Attack dogs live so closely with these soldiers that they won't let many other people close. And that's part of the training. This is VOA News. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. What's the intersection of gender and Russia's war in Ukraine? Well, Aberystwyth University professor Ginny Mathers is currently at the University of St. Andrews Institute for the Study of War, giving a talk on the political, economic, and military dynamics that's affecting Russia, Ukraine, Ukraine's international supporters, and the security relationship among them. Earlier today, I caught up with her in between presentations via WhatsApp on the subject. So, so Ginny, I, I guess where I want to begin is... You know this this present these series of presentations you're doing on, on gender and the role that uh, you know people are playing in the war with politics with economics. Can you kind of explain what you're seeing in, in terms of the role that gender is playing in terms of politics, both within Russia and Ukraine? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So it's really interesting because because perceptions about gender, and by that I mean something really as basic as what are the appropriate roles for men and women to play, um, they really pervade the the approaches that both Russia and Ukraine are taking to the war. And in particular, they're really important for the sorts of values that both countries are claiming for their own. So, for example, if we turn to Putin's Russia first, um, Putin has been making a lot of the idea that Russia stands for traditional conservative family values and even went so far in 2020 to change the constitution. So, the constitution of Russia now says marriage is between a man and a woman. So, none of this gay marriage business for Russia um, makes it really clear that this is about traditional family values. And so, what that means is, you know, Putin is saying, this is the sort of society we are. This is how we order ourselves. um, And and this is what we stand for in the future. And it really reflects, for example, um, the way that the war is being fought. It reflects the fact that it's men who are being uh, recruited, who are being um, conscripted, who are being mobilized, being sent out to fight, being told that it's their manly duty. It's their their duty to be a man, be masculine, uh, go and fight the war. And the fact that there are actually women soldiers fighting in Ukraine for Russia is very much played down, right? So it's, it's, it's hardly mentioned. And it's important for Russia to play that down in order to keep the sense that there is an appropriate traditional gendered order and everybody knows their place, right? So if we turn to Ukraine, um, it's almost the opposite. 
So one of the things that Ukraine has been really trying very hard to do is to um, make the impression, make the, make the claim to the West in particular, that Ukraine shares Western values. And in particular, these are values like liberal democracy, uh, like a commitment to a free market, uh, an open economy, these kinds of things. But also gender equality has been really important in saying these are the values that we will carry forward into a post-war peaceful Ukraine, and, and they're the same values that you have. And so we see Zelensky very, very proudly awarding medals to women soldiers. We see a lot of the restrictions against women serving in combat in Ukraine being removed. <clears throat> They've been removed several years ago. Um, we see you know, the role of women soldiers in particular really being pushed uh, to the forefront of attention, um, even though the numbers of women serving in the Ukrainian military are roughly the same as the numbers of women serving in the Russian military. You get a very different impression about it. So ideas about the appropriate roles for men and women, I would say, are really permeating throughout the way that both countries are presenting themselves and seeing themselves. What about economics? Because, you know, when I think about wartime, my my, you know, instantaneous you know, look back to history, right? In World War II, and as American men were abroad fighting, women in the U.S. stepped up. I mean, you have this iconic picture of Rosie the Riveter doing things for for aviation, building those those planes that were used in combat. But you know, what what is your research saying in the terms of of how gender is is interacting with the economic sector? Because since the war began, there's been great concern about how this is impacting Ukraine and. In even you know worldwide with grain shipments over the Black Sea. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> I mean, I think in in the case of Ukraine, we have several things going on. Um, yes, absolutely. You have women stepping up into roles that previously they weren't doing. The women who are still in Ukraine, of course, many of the women um, have left, have taken young children and and, and fled the the war. Um, but those who are left are doing um, different roles in the economy. But they're also doing more roles in politics. So you have a lot of local authorities, local um, sort of cities and towns, um, their, their local councillors and their mayors now are women uh, who, are, who are running civil society and, and keeping everything under control. So you do have women sort of stepping up. Um, and, and at the same time, though, one of the things that, that is a, a sort of a less positive gender dimension of, of the war is the way that more and more resources, of course, have to be put into uh, military spending. And there's less and less which is available to support civilian society. Um, and I think this is a problem that uh, the Ukrainians are, are facing and trying to deal with because, of course, there are many demands on you know the, the resources for civilian society, especially when it comes to things like having to rebuild hospitals, you know, look after the injured, all these kinds of things. So there's a real sense of of trying to to work through these different gender dynamics um, as the war continues. You know, we're speaking predominantly about Russia and Ukraine, the two the two countries who are fighting. Uh, but your research also looked into, you know, the role gender plays uh, and intersects with this fight, uh, you know, for, for countries supporting Russia and, and Ukraine. Yes. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm finding is that uh, it really affects the way that, that we as, as outsiders understand and talk about these countries. And there's been a lot of uh, I think, sort of infantilizing language when it comes to Ukraine. In other words, talking about the Ukrainians as though 
um, they're, they're completely dependent upon other people, particularly dependent upon the West, that they can't make decisions on their own or they're, um, they're sort of waiting for the West to tell them what to do. And certainly there's been a lot uh, in the media recently around uh, whether there was a, a hope for a peace deal quite early on uh, and whether Western uh, leaders, particularly uh, the British Prime Minister at the time, Boris Johnson, uh, you know, said things to discourage Zelensky from carrying on. Um, but really what's, what's behind a lot of this is this assumption that really the Ukraine Ukrainians cannot make their own decisions. Uh, they're not sort of proper grown-ups. And this is a very gendered way of, of thinking about them. It's quite feminizing. It's quite infantilizing. Um, and by the same token, I think what we've seen when the Ukrainian forces have had some really uh, impressive uh, successes and have really demonstrated their ability <clears throat> on the battlefield, um, we've seen a lot of um, very sort of uh, championing of of the masculinity of of them. See, they can fight. They're real men. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of sort of armchair um, um, rooting uh, over them and 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 cheering about them. But but very much the fact that yes, they've shown that they can they can they can fight. They can defend themselves. You know, we we can rely on them. Um, and and this sort of pride uh, in in the masculinity of of the soldiers on the on the battlefield. Jenny Mathers is a political science professor at Aberystwyth University in Wales, but today she's talking to us from St. Andrews. Jenny, as always, we thank you for your time. Thank you. Hungary signaled its readiness on Monday for a compromise, allowing a proposed European Union aid package for Ukraine to be financed from the bloc's budget ahead of an emergency summit on Thursday. Prime Minister Viktor Orban previously blocked a revision of the EU budget that included the aid prompting its leaders to come up with a plan B and call an emergency summit. The development comes as Hungary's foreign minister is currently visiting Kyiv. Speaking to reporters, Andrei Yermak discussed the visit's objective. We really need the results of our today's meetings. One of the goals is uh, to prepare it uh, for the meetings between Prime Minister and President of Ukraine. Uh, and we are ready for very constructive, very detailed and honest conversations. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban has retained cordial ties with Russia despite Moscow's invasion of Ukraine nearly two years ago. And on Saturday, Hungary's far-right Our Homeland Party laid claim to a western region of Ukraine that's home to about 150,000 ethnic Hungarians if Ukraine loses its statehood due to the Russian invasion. Requests for comments from Reuters News by the Hungarian Foreign Ministry as well as the Ukrainian Embassy in Budapest were not immediately answered. And finally, as Ukraine resorts to a variety of methods to fending off invading Russian forces... One of the latest ones involves training dogs to accompany Ukrainian soldiers on their missions. Anna Kostachenko brings us that story to round us out. This Belgian shepherd is named Tornado, and he is only two years old. At six months old, he was selected to take part in special operations with Ukraine's armed forces. The dog's handler can't share his name. He goes by the call sign Ray. The dog is very motivated and resistant to stress. From the very first lesson, he did everything perfectly. Ray joined Ukraine's special forces in 2019. 
He and his fellow fighters perform special military tasks, and now they train dogs for such missions. Since the start of Russia's invasion, Tornado has mostly been trained to look for enemy saboteurs. Ray says Ukrainian dog handlers adopted the tactics of U.S. Navy SEALs and Delta Force members, who also use dogs for combat missions. For the dogs, training is tough and lasts a grueling six months. When Tornado is on a mission and he enters a building, he is trained to attack the first person he sees. We also train dogs to attack people with weapons. The only way to make the dog abandon the target is to literally tear it away, which is what the handler does. Although Tornado is dangerous in mission mode, in everyday life he is well behaved and does not pose any danger to society, says his handler. But Ray says attack dogs live so closely with these soldiers that they won't let many other people close, and that's part of the training. It is necessary to train the dog in the same group that will go on the mission, so that if the dog handler is injured, the dog will allow other unit members to help with evacuation. Otherwise, Tornado may attack them and prevent medical assistance. Tornado has not yet participated in combat missions, but in October the dog received an award for excellent work in smoky conditions and being surrounded by explosives under the command of Ukraine's armed forces. Anna Kostichenko for View in Yushitoma region, Ukraine. And that's going to do it for us today. Be sure to stay up to date with our continuing coverage on the war in Ukraine, as well as news from around the world. You can do so 24 hours a day at voanews.com, as well as on our social media platforms. Just be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of everyone at VOA, we thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm Steve Miller.